in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome to this week's Nature Podcast. This week in the show, piecing together hominin history from stone tools and growing peril for the world's coral reefs. Plus whale song out of the water and fetal workouts. This is the Nature Podcast for the 1st of February 2018. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Almost two million years ago, our ancient ancestor Homo erectus is estimated to have first migrated out of Africa. This is a time known to archaeologists as the Lower Paleolithic. These hominins took with them the most cutting-edge technology available, including teardrop-shaped stone tools known as Acheulean hand axes. As time progressed and hominins evolved, the world transitioned into the Middle Paleolithic, a period marked by a decline in Acheulean technologies and the development of more advanced and specialised tools. Because of the scarcity of hominin fossil remains, there's a lot we don't know about the Middle Paleolithic. This means that studying stone tools is a good way of working out the movements of ancient populations and knowledge. This is one of the time periods when you have a lot of debate going on on dispersals of hominin species, both uh, modern humans as well as other species. This is Shanti Papu from the Sharma Centre for Heritage Education in India. One of the key questions which everyone is looking at is how and uh, where and when they moved and what was happening in terms of interaction with local cultures, which were already there in various places. So this is one of the things which we are looking at. Shanti has got a paper out in Nature this week that's been using the transition between tool types to make a new estimate of when Middle Paleolithic culture began in India. Her results suggest that this time period might have been a lot earlier than previously thought. The historical evidence for this work comes from an archaeological site called Atiram Pakham, on the banks of a stream in the southeast of India. The site was discovered by the British geologist Robert Bruce Foote in 1863. Shanti has been working there since 1999. So when we started excavating, it's a huge site and we took a number of trenches uh, across the site and very, very slow, meticulous uh, excavations with a huge number of scientists from different disciplines from all over the world. And um, we have been trying to look at the archaeology, the changes, the paleo-environment, the vegetation, the monsoon, climate change, of course, the dates at this site, through time. Shanti's new paper focuses on three of the trenches, dug up to nine metres deep in the site's soil. The different layers of sediment give snapshots of individual time periods a bit like looking at the rings of a tree. From just one of the trenches, Shanti and her colleagues uncovered over 7,000 stone tools of various types. By linking the depths that these tools were found with the technology used to create them, the team were able to chart what sort of culture was at the site at particular times. Right at the bottom, you have the earliest cultures called the Ashulian uh, of the Lower Paleolithic, and we dated that to 1 to 1.7 million years old. And then we get a break in occupation midway, We don't know why. Following this mysterious break in occupation, hominins returned to the site around 385,000 years ago, when the makeup of the tools changed. While Acheulean tools made of large flakes of stone were still present, they were gradually phased out as time went on and replaced by more advanced middle Paleolithic implements. At this point in time, you have a few of the older Acheulean elements still continuing, 
and you have a predominant shift away from some of the Acheulean technologies to this new system, this new way of uh, flaking stone, which is showing up here. So in the very beginning, there are still elements of the Acheulean. There are still some of these hand axes, but the large flake tools completely drop out. And you have this beautiful technology called the Levalua, which is quite sophisticated. And then you have points and blades and lots of small flake tools. And these evolve in different ways through time at the site. Previous estimates pegged the beginning of the Middle Paleolithic in India at only 125,000 years ago. And this is around the time that Homo sapiens are thought to have first migrated out of Africa. Now, the stone tools of this period are often associated with Homo sapiens. So pushing this date back to 385,000 years ago raises several questions. Who brought these tools, or the techniques used to make them, to the region? If it was indeed Homo sapiens, does this mean we've got the date that humans first migrated from Africa way off? To better understand who went where and when, we can't just rely on tools. We need bones. Indeed, just last week, a paper in Science described a newly discovered fragment of fossilised jawbone from Israel, suggesting that Homo sapiens may have migrated out of Africa 50,000 years earlier than previously thought. So why have no bones been discovered at the Atiram Pakham site? Given that thousands of tools have been uncovered, it seems odd that none of their owners have been found. Sadly, as Shanti explains, the local tropical environment just isn't conducive to skeleton preservation. In this type of tropical environment, bones are very, very easily uh, destroyed. And in fact, at Atalampakam, we were very lucky to get three fossil teeth of uh, animal fauna. But apart from that, preservation conditions are very poor for bones. Until such bones are found, the question of who made the tools that took India into the Middle Paleolithic will remain unanswered. What this work does show, though, is that there is still a lot to discover about the history of hominins. You heard from Shanti Papu there, joining us on the phone from the Sharma Centre for Heritage Education. You can read her paper over at nature.com forward slash nature, and we'll put some pictures up of the amazing stone tools she uncovered on our Twitter account at Nature Podcast. Still to come, an update on the uncertain future for the world's coral reefs. But first, it's the research highlights, read by Emily Bannum. Expectant mothers getting fetal kicks right through the night may have a bone to pick with their boisterous babies. However, the fidgeting fetus is just flexing its muscles and building healthy bones. MRI scans of wriggling human fetuses in the second half of pregnancy have enabled the first ever estimates of muscle forces and stresses on the baby's skeleton. Fetal kicks got much stronger between 20 and 30 weeks, but weakened again towards labour. Stresses on the baby's skeleton remained high as wriggling room became restricted. These early embryonic exercises likely help bone and joint formation. This window into the womb is in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface. The sounds of the sea could soon be sampled using a material that lets noise pass from water to air. Usually, sound waves travelling through water are almost entirely reflected at the boundary with air. Engineers have made a material less than half a centimetre thick filled with tiny structures that make incoming sound waves bounce around. This reduced reflection and let 30% of the sound pass from water to air. Marine biologists could use the material in microphones to eavesdrop on ocean life from the comfort of their own boats. Sound out the paper over at Physical Review Letters. 
In a moment, Adam Levy has a report about some of the problems facing the world's coral reefs. But first, cast your minds back, if you can, to our holiday special episode from the end of 2017. Remember this? Very little science fiction literature written before the 80s came anywhere close to predicting the internet and instant communication as well. Very few science fiction books predicted anything like the cell phone. That was from an interview I did with Alistair Reynolds about the relevance of science fiction in the modern world. Well, one of our listeners, John LePage, got in touch with a counterexample. He cited a device called the Phototelesme, which was introduced in The Black Box, a novel by E. Phillips Oppenheim, published way back in 1915. We read through John's example, and indeed, the phototelesme does appear to be an early imagining of a proto-smartphone, albeit one which uses a lot more mirrors than the modern-day equivalent. Thanks, John LePage, for letting us know. And now, from a 20th century prediction of the future to something altogether more pressing. Adam Levy has been investigating the uncertain future of some of the most biodiverse places on Earth, coral reefs. Graduate student Nathan Mollicker is fascinated by coral. His work has taken him to reefs around the world. And while every reef is unique, they almost all have one thing in common. The first thing that strikes you about almost any reef is the complete abundance of life. They're almost like oases in the ocean. Much like rainforests, coral reefs are complex ecosystems that we're still a long way from understanding fully. But also like rainforests, reefs aren't just valuable for their ecological importance. They're integral to the lives of huge numbers of people around the world. Over 500 million people in the world uh, make their livelihood and depend on coral reefs. It's not just tourism and fisheries that make reefs so important. They also provide coastal communities with vital protection from storms and typhoons. But it's becoming increasingly clear that coral reefs themselves need vital protection from us. Perhaps the most obvious threat comes from climate change. Warmer seas spell bad news for corals. In 2016 and 2017, the Great Barrier Reef was hit by mass bleaching. This saw huge numbers of corals expel their colourful symbiotic algae, which can ultimately lead to their death. But our carbon dioxide emissions aren't just creating a warmer world. They're also creating more acidic oceans. You can easily say that it's, it's fairly obvious how ocean acidification would affect an organism that builds its skeleton out of calcium carbonate. That's because ocean acidification would lead to fewer carbonate ions available for the coral. But measuring the rate that corals build up calcium carbonate hasn't revealed the obvious relationship that theory predicts. To clear up this picture, Nathan and his team measured seawater chemistry and coral cores at many different reef sites. Their research, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this week, couldn't find a link between the vertical upward growth of coral and ocean acidification. However, what we did see is that the acidification negatively impacted the density of the coral skeleton in locations where low pH conditions existed. It does bring worry to the future of coral reefs because it affects the entire structural integrity of those reefs that are built out of both living and dead corals. But acidification is far from the only worry for coral reefs. 
corals also have to endure an inundation of plastic pollution. Ocean plastics harms go beyond floating rubbish that may be munched by unsuspecting animals. That's because plastic can also become tangled up on the sea floor and on reefs. Here's Drew Harvell, who's been investigating the damage that plastic could cause reefs. Plastic entangled is a triple whammy for coral infections. First, it abrades and cuts open the skin of the coral, and then the plastic is dirty and can convey pathogenic microorganisms that can cause disease. And then finally, um, it can shade the light that these solar-powered animals need and cut off water flow. A lot of research on ocean trash has focused on floating plastics. But Drew's study, published last week in Science, quantified the impact of plastic entangled around coral. We individually noted the health of over 124,000 corals from 159 reefs. And our study estimates that about 11.1 billion plastic items are entangled in these coral reefs. The likelihood of disease increases if a coral is in contact with a plastic from about 4% to 89%. So a very substantial increase. These findings indicate coral is 20 times more likely to be infected if it's contaminated with plastic. You know, what does it say about us sending in trash that in its second life takes down these cathedrals of living biodiversity in our oceans? Of course, coral reefs aren't facing plastics and ocean acidification separately. Warming, acidification and pollution work in tandem to threaten these delicate ecosystems. We are just fighting for the, for the life of coral reefs over the next 50 years. For a lot of reefs, there's a dire threat. Many of these stressors will potentially compound on each other. But although all these changes to the ocean are affecting corals, the fights to tackle them may look very different. Ocean acidification, Nathan explains, is a truly global problem. You can't really put a wall around a reef and protect it from ocean acidification. A lot of these large-scale problems have to be dealt with as a global community. Global problems require global solutions, and there's no sign that the world is poised to halt the trend in ocean acidification or warming anytime soon. But Drew is hopeful that the fight against plastics might be somewhat easier to win. This is a much simpler problem, I think, because it can be handled on a local scale. So we can immediately turn this around by cleaning up the coastal nearshore trash and stop inputting it. People are asking me, well, what research do we need? We need to know more about what kinds of microorganisms are on plastic. It might surprise you, but my own view is we don't need any more. We just need to fix this. There's just no reason to not clean this up and enact policies to do that. That was Drew Harvell, who's at Cornell University, talking to Adam Levy. Before her, you heard Nathan Mollica, who's in the MIT Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution joint programme. To find out more about their coral studies, have a look over at Science and PNAS, respectively. Last up this week, it's the News Chat, and joining me in the studio is Alison Goddard, Nature's European Bureau Chief. Alison, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Right, I think we should do our first story, and we are going to head to Turkey, and we've got something in Nature about a physicist who has recently been released from prison. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that. 
Uh, so this is a physicist called Ali Kaya, and he's a theoretical physicist, uh, but he's just one of several thousand academics who were rounded up by the Turkish government following the attempted coup against President Erdogan. Uh, that was back in July 2016. And these academics have been charged either with uh, terrorist offences or for plotting the coup. Uh, he was uh, then jailed and he's now been released from jail and he's published three academic papers that he wrote whilst he was imprisoned. He's written these papers then. I mean, what sort of pressures was he under? Where, where was he at the time? So he was jailed in a Turkish prison a few miles outside Istanbul and uh, he had to share his cell normally with about 20 prisoners, some of whom though were academically inclined. So he said that he was shared with some teachers, there was another associate professor there and a medic. So some of their conversation would have been around academic subjects. Um, but he worked by himself with a pen and paper several hours a day. He says that science kept him sane. But he had very little access to external materials, so there was no internet, not even a handheld calculator. Uh, at one point, he tried to get papers, and a former student of his translated some papers into Turkish because he wasn't allowed to take in any materials that was in a foreign language. And even those were denied him because they contained equations, and the prison guards were concerned that those equations might contain some sort of codes. Oh my goodness, so he really has gone back to first principles then and, and done all of his equations by hand? Yes, I mean, he had to derive everything from first principles. Well, well what has he been deriving then? What's, what's he been working on? Well, he's a theoretical physicist, so he was working on theoretical physics. His speciality is uh, cosmology. So in particular, he studies cosmological perturbation theory. So he has been doing this research then under pressures that most academics obviously don't encounter. What's happened to the research now that he's been released? Well, the research he has published on an online archive and he's hoping to turn it into some solid academic papers. And uh, he's continuing to work, but he's not able to return to his university. Oh, really? And, and why is that? Well, he was suspended uh, from his academic position. And uh, when his conviction was upheld, the university now has to decide whether to you know, allow him to return or whether to, to fire him. And that's something that he's awaiting at present. Well, thanks, Alison. I'm sure we'll uh, cover news of that when we get it. Uh, next today, then, let's talk about chimps in the US. I mean, we've got a story here about uh, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, looking to retire the chimps involved in research. So the NIH has got almost 300 chimps that it's seeking to retire. And it's now investigating how best to, to go about this. The options are to retire the chimps whilst leaving them in the labs that they're currently living in, or the alternative would be to send them to a sanctuary. Hmm. And who's making this decision and why does it need to be made? Well, the NIH has set up a working group to examine whether moving the chimps is in their best interests. And one of the problems that's occurred in the past is that after chimps have been moved, they have a higher than expected death rate. And... Part of the reasons why that might be is because the chimps are elderly, they're not always in good health, and when they're moved, they have to reform social groups, and that can be very stressful. So it sounds then that careful decisions need to be made about where to send these chimps. Um, what options do we have? Where, where, where could they go? The options are actually very limited. There's only one facility, and it's a federally funded sanctuary, and it's called Chimp Haven. So what's stopping the NIH sort of getting on with it then and sending all the chimps to Chimp Haven? There are two limiting factors here. The first is the size of Chimp Haven. It's pretty much at capacity already and it doesn't have the space for another 300 chimps. 
Uh, the second is the NIH still needs to identify whether this is in the best interest of the chimps, whether it might be better to keep them in the social groups that they're currently in within the laboratory and that might be a happier outcome for the chimps than moving them to a more natural environment. When will this happen? What can we expect uh, next? It will happen relatively quickly. We're hoping that the working group will be able to make its recommendations by May. Thank you, Alison. For more on these stories and the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. But before we leave you, one quick shout out to Stephen Lee, who got in touch to say he's been enjoying the podcast. In his words, serious science news presented with a nice, entertaining style. Well, I don't think I can argue with that. Thanks, Stephen. And if you'd like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Tweet us at Nature Podcast or send us an email podcast at nature.com. Otherwise, it would be great if you could leave us a nice review or some stars over on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening.